Well, hey, welcome again to our church. Uh, we are going to dive into Genesis today. I think uh, Peter was mentioning we're going to uh, flip our service, so start with a sermon today. And, and as we say often here, I hear from God corporately, uh, not just learn about some of the facts of the Bible, though, um, you know, for especially the Bible nerds among us, you don't have to be that, but I consider myself one. Uh, it, just to, to learn about the facts can be fun and learn more about the contents and they kind of file them away in our minds. That's a piece to what we do, but it's actually not the main thing. This is not a seminary classroom. It's not even, not even a, a church-based training uh, classroom. We might have even here at Hiawatha downstairs throughout the year or something. Uh, that complements what we do here uh, with preaching on a weekly basis. But this uh, all the more is a time where we corporately hear from God in his goodness, in his faithfulness. We're, we're reminded that he is ultimately a God of grace. As, as it says in John 1, Jesus came to bring grace and truth. Uh, Moses came to bring the law and with that some condemnation to kind of expose where we were kind of in ourselves before a holy God, imperfect and unable to save ourselves. But when Christ came, he brought grace and truth. And so it's a, a chance to hear that afresh or for the first time or especially, and I'm guessing for most of us, I'll say it for myself, uh, towards people who are forgetful uh, uh, like me. So, all right, so a little bit of a recap. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. It means beginnings. And so if you're just joining us, uh, this is a really crude recap, but it's important to understand that there is a problem that is uh, unpacked and talked about as uh, some theological history that's aligned with a problem that God sets out to resolve right away in Genesis. And so Genesis is the beginnings of that resolution. The whole Bible is the story of that resolution, how God is bringing hope amidst it. But the beginnings of that resolution, the beginnings of the gospel, which means good news, the good news of Jesus, Jesus Christ is in uh, Genesis 12. And so Back earlier in Genesis 3, we read the story about how humanity collectively sinned and rebelled against God by sinking their teeth into the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, which may not sound that bad. And so there was a garden there in the beginning, if you weren't here for this, and God said, don't eat from this one tree. You can eat from any tree, but don't eat from this one tree, which symbolizes the knowledge, knowing the difference between uh, good and evil, which, again, that might sound like, well, why is that such a big deal? And we talked about it, how uh, it was a big deal because, one, well, God just told them not to, and that should be enough. Uh, but second, it was an expression, and we see this as, it, as things kind of play out after they do, in fact, sink their teeth into that fruit. It was an expression of striving to become too much like God. They were already in his image, but that wasn't enough. And so they, they, they sought to, kind of incited by Satan and the lies he was spewing out to them, uh, seeking to become too much like him, to live independently from him, to disbelieve and distrust him, and even to be good without him. It's kind of like in Lord of the Rings where there's that, I think Gandalf says it, but there's that reaching for that, that little discourse about reaching for the, the ring of power with a desire to do good. But in it, 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 it kind of uh, it, it rings out all kinds of evil. It, it corrupts the heart, and, and it kind of performs the, the mission that it was sent out uh, to to accomplish, which was to bring evil and dominion uh, to, to the world, I'm paraphrasing. But it's kind of like that. Even reaching for good without God is evil. There is no such thing as goodness without God. This is what the Bible paints right at the beginning of the Bible. God is the essence of good, and so reaching for it without him is essentially the first act of pride. It's the first act of arrogance. It's the first act of, God, we don't need you. It's rebellion. It's a coup. Uh, it's it's pulling, taking up arms against the king of the universe and staging uh, the ultimate coup, which is, which is um, high treason. And so that all then led to other more notable and obvious sins, or I say obvious because this might be the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of sin, but obvious sins like murder that happened right away in Genesis 4, uh, sexual sin, Genesis um, 6, deceitfulness, unkindness, the love of money. All of that flows from saying, I don't need God. And the heart is subjectively corrupted, but there's that objective idea too where if we go our own way, like sheep without a shepherd, that is invariably what happens. So it's a story we've all partaken in. We've, this is not just a story from long ago. It's a story that we all have as our roots, as our origins. Uh, we were all there with Adam and Eve in the beginning, sinking our teeth into that same fruit and experiencing the curse, the, that objective and subjective reality, a sin, sinful reality that kind of uh, came came from it. And so, so as you've been reading, though, uh, right away in Genesis 4, there's glimpses of the, actually Genesis 3, right after sin comes into the world and God speaks to Adam and Eve and to Satan, and there's some fallout there and there's some judgment, but also some grace spoken. We've seen God be very good and strangely patient time and time again. 
He himself has promised to undo all the wrong. Right away, this first promise, we call it the Proto-Evangelion, which is uh, a phrase that means the first gospel, the first at least explicit glimpse of the gospels in Genesis 3, I think 16, I forget the verse, but where God says that I will bring enmity between the seed of the woman, so uh, the, the, the eventual ultimate offspring of Eve, which is Jesus Christ, and, uh, and you, speaking to the serpent, to, to Satan. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to war against you and, and, and undo the lies, undo the curse that was this ultimately Satan-incited thing that humanity partook of. And so he's promised to undo it himself. And he's beginning to show fulfillment then to that promise by being a grace-centered, patient, strangely kind God. And, and one of the big things we've seen, that I'm fast-forwarding a bit here, in Genesis 12 is he's identified a man named Abram to begin to show the fulfillment of, of this initial promise. Promising to bring blessing through him to a cursed world. And so the solution, as we were saying a couple of weeks ago, comes from one of Abram's offspring, or again, one of Eve's offspring, back up and it goes back to Eve, Jesus Christ. And, and so in the meantime, Abram's already become in some ways an example of faith, kind of a New Testament Christian or Old Testament liver by faith. Uh, in other ways, a picture of Christ, and in other ways, a massively huge sinner. So it's kind of a weird guy. You know, sometimes we get this picture of, oh my gosh, I can't believe he did that or said that. In other ways, he's this example of shining faith as a sinner, but still having faith in God to save sinful people like himself. And so he's, he's an example to follow in that area as well. And in other ways, because he is the ancestor of Jesus Christ, bloodline-wise, he resembles him. And so in some aspects, too, we're not just seeing him as a picture of us. We've kind of flipped it around and looked at this divine side of the passage and said, well, how is he resembling what the gospel is ahead of time? And he's doing this time, and this is not, not just something Abram does, but people in his line all throughout the Old Testament, even outside of his line, uh, God is orchestrating history as such to, to kind of whisper him and his solution ahead of time, like a, grand, a grandfather might resemble his grandson or his great grandson in some ways, uh, Jesus Christ himself. And his mission is present, even in a shadowy, implicit form, in the life of, of Abram. And so last week then, uh, Spencer preached, we look at how, how they, um, uh, there's a, he has, his rap sheet is pretty dark. Actually, I'll come back to that. Let me just start reading Genesis 13, 1 to 18. I'll summarize kind of as we go here. Genesis 13 today, the whole chapter. That's actually the wrong reference. <laughs> it's not 1 to 8. Sorry, it's a lot longer than that. Uh, 1 to 18. All right, so verse 1. So Abram went up uh, from Egypt, and so just stop right there. Remember, part of what God is doing is he's identifying a man from a land, or of the Chaldeans, to travel far west to this land, this promised land, the land of Canaan, which would later become Israel proper, and so the east side of the Mediterranean. And he's saying, this is symbolic of my presence. It's a land of blessing. It's kind of a, a harbor amidst a cursed world, and it's a picture of, of salvation. It's a picture of closeness uh, to myself. And so what happened is he went there, he followed God's call there, then there was a famine, and he went to Egypt. And then some things happened there, which we'll talk about later, some things that aren't so great for his rap sheet and so forth. And then he, um, uh, he's coming back from Egypt into the land of Canaan, or again, the promised land, and uh, some things occur here today. So just to remind you where we've been. So Abram went up from Egypt, and he and his wife, Sarai, and all that he had and lot with him into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Uh, Lot is Abram's nephew, to be clear here. Uh, is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. 
Thus they separated each from each other. And Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. All right, so basically what's happening in this passage is Abram and his nephew Lot are re-entering the land. There's no room for all of them. There's infighting amongst their tribes and their herdsmen, and Abram kind of generously gives him a part of the land and his choice actually first, and then takes, uh, Lot goes east towards the Jordan River and uh, kind of actually outside the land a little bit, and that becomes important later on in, in some fashion. And then uh, Abram kind of takes Canaan or the land proper to the west, that big chunk of land between the Mediterranean and the... Um, the Jordan River, and then God speaks to Abram and again kind of re-ups the covenant saying, I will give all this land to you. Uh, open your eyes, arise, walk salvifically and freely in this place that I give you where I am, where I'm specially manifesting my presence. And so Abram now, and this is especially, you'll feel this if you were here last week and you uh, heard where kind of he was at, where we were at in Genesis, but where he was at spiritually and physically. Abram's now in a much better spot on both levels. Physically and spiritually. Physically, he's back in the land of Canaan, the promised land, where, where God's blessing is, where God's presence is. And spiritually, he's back in a place of trusting God, showing generosity to his nephew, a guy who's at uh, odds with him, and just being wise with the whole thing. So, in fact, it's, it's interesting how the geography here helps us tell uh, a spiritual story metaphorically. And so what I mean is, and I have a slide here to kind of help depict this, on the bottom left there is where he was in Egypt, and um, the, uh, the red circle is at least the part of Canaan that um, he's uh, settling or resettling in. And so what I mean is when he was in Egypt, he was, and we talked about this last week, he was lying, he was not trusting God, he was selling his wife, this is a big thing, he was selling his wife literally to Pharaoh, uh, fearful for his life, saying, that's my sister, not my wife, and and, and he gives her to him, and in return, he gets all these, uh, these goods and things. So not exactly winning husband of the year, uh, as we uh, unpacked more last week in, in more detail. But when he's back in the land, a land that's symbolic of God's presence, he's trusting God again, he's wisely resolving conflict, and he's being incredibly generous when he doesn't have to. It's night and day. And, and remember this, we'll come back to this a little bit later on today as well, this is an important how-to-read-the-Bible type statement. So especially if you're new to the Bible, understand this. We kind of talked about this. But this land, Canaan, is emblematic of the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, of salvation, closeness to God, and blessing. It's a hint that God is going to get us back to Eden, or at least an Eden-like place of rest again, even though we've sinned uh, so greatly against him. And so when they're looking at the land, when they're coming back into it, when, when he's doing this, when Lot's doing this, later when Israel does this, when they come into the land again from Egypt, it's this re re recycled pattern over and over again to show us that God is a God who brings us from sin into salvation, from our old life into a new life, from worshiping other gods to worshiping him, which Abram's doing here, setting up an altar to the Lord, softening the old heart, giving us a new heart. It's emblematic, it's metaphorical, it's of something much greater uh, going on. And so you can see, well, Abram's there doing the first back selfie ever, I think, um, towards the, uh, the uh, promised land, which is quite a bar for back selfies. But anyway, so remember that. And so again, it's interesting that this, this story is not just about Abram traveling from one place to another. We get this kind of overlaid spiritual lesson here on top of it. As he's going from one place to another, his heart is softening. As he's going from Egypt to the land of promise, he's going from wife-seller to nephew-lover, to from liar to being a generous man. You see, and it's subtle, but it's, it's giving us a hint of what's coming later. We're going to see this a ton in Genesis, of course, but 
pointing ahead to the New Testament especially, this is again telling us it's about more than land. This is about this right here. It's about this changing. It's about, it's about God taking us from a place where this couldn't be changed and we couldn't change it when it was too hard and it was not a fertile land in here, spiritually speaking, taking us to a place where God is, where all of a sudden this changes in here. Where does generosity come from? Where does kindness come from? Where does looking out for someone else more than yourself, especially those you might think are beneath you, like a child or, in this case, a nephew, maybe an employee or something, for those of you who are employers, where does that come from? And what this is saying is from God alone. And it wasn't present when he wasn't close to God in Egypt, metaphorically. But being close to where God is, when God provides this and, and it, it provides the sustenance, the spiritual sustenance that provides us in our souls, uh, it is, in fact, possible. So, so just see that, see a glimpse of that here. We'll come back to this a little bit this week and the following weeks because Abram's story keeps going a lot throughout Genesis. But there's a spiritual undercurrent to physical travel in the Bible. There's a spiritual undercurrent to physical travel from one land to, to another and geography. Uh, as, as we see here early on in the Bible, uh, it's, uh, again, file that away too. As you read the parts of the Old Testament app this outside of Genesis, it's really helpful uh, to, to clarify things. Okay, so let's keep going. This is the big thing we'll spend most of our time on then. Not only is this, is this about more than land then, it's about more than just Abram. And that might be obvious to some of you. I'm, I'm guessing maybe it wasn't uh, to, uh, to some of you uh, as well, but we'll talk about this. Um, so the question is, well, what's it about? And, you know, what is it? How do, how do we know that's the case? We'll talk about those two things. Uh, the answer, first of all, to kind of get the wrong answer out of the way, or at least the not as great answer. <laughs> Sometimes there's secondary answers. Uh, the answer is not that... This is about some kind of moral lesson on how to resolve conflict. Or, you know, for those of you who are, who are uncles out there, for all you uncles, this is how you care for nephews, <laughs> you know, or those of you who are called the promised lands, which no one is like this anyway. Uh, this is how you divide promised lands. That's kind of silly, right, to think about that. In fact, if it was supposed to be a manual on how to care for nephews or even broadly on how to resolve conflict, it's a very bad manual, Right? It's terrible. It, it's, not, it, it's not descriptive enough. It's not even trying to do that. Abram, Lot, or God is not saying that's what this means. Right? And so we don't have, all, we don't have enough material here on this. There are other places in the Bible we could go to get uh, more of, of that. And, and sure, there are some principles here that we would do well to apply to our life, like putting others first. Uh, and, you know, it says in the Bible, as far as possible, as much as it depends on us, uh, seek to be at peace with everyone. That's Romans, I think. Uh, seek to be at peace with everyone, as far as it depends on us, which means it won't always be possible, but uh, it's a good thing for Christians to seek because we've been sought peace uh, by God uh, as, uh, as well. It's kind of the ground for it. So, so Abram here is actually remarkably generous. Uh, we read over that kind of quick, but the fact that he, especially in this culture, said, Lot, you get to pick first, is amazingly generous. Uh, that, that would have been very abnormal uh, for a patriarch-like figure like Abraham to, to do this. So he's being remarkably generous and wise here. But again, we can go one of two ways, interpretationally, to one of two places when we come across a theme like this in Old Testament narrative or New Testament narrative. We can go to us or we can go to God. And it's not really a both and. I mean, in one sense, we can get to both places, but they're not on equal footing. So we read about generosity, we can go, okay, that's about me. It, this, this is about me being generous. Or we can go to God and say, this is actually about God because all generosity comes from him. And Abraham is an ancestor of the ultimate generous one, the ultimate giver of himself, Jesus Christ. And so we first go there before we go here to us. And, and I'm telling you guys, that, that by experience <laughs> and from what the scriptures say, I'm telling you that, that what you do right there, I mean, this is a great example of this today, kind of an obscure passage, hard to handle this interpretationally. Where you go on those two roads says everything about your spirituality and everything about how you read the Bible, for the better or the worse. So what we're going to do then is, is keep pushing, harping on this idea that taking the God route, 
This is more about God. This is a book about him being the hero. More about him, at least primarily, initially, than it is, than it is um, us before we get to uh, the principles of, of faith and, and other things that we'll, uh, we'll come back to. So, so what is it about then? The, the general answer is Jesus Christ. And I said that already. We've already talked about this actually in this series, how, how Abraham's ultimate descendant is Jesus, bloodline-wise. And so the Bible calls him a patriarch, meaning a father-type figure of faith who serves an example of how God will work later in the story, just in greater ways. He's an example of a sinner having faith in God. And furthermore, he's a type or a picture or a foreshadowing of Christ biblically, theologically, meaning he resembles him, again, so just to make sure all that's clear. But it's interesting, right in Genesis 13, so this is a, that's a, a broader thing, what I just said there, but right in this passage, the passage gives us hints that this is the way to read the passage. Which is fast. We don't always get this. Uh, we don't need this to, say what I, to conclude what I just concluded, but, but we have it here. Uh, we, have, we have a hint, a clue that the passage tells us Abram's speaking beyond himself. He's acting beyond himself a bit, uh, and, and that this passage, again, is about more than him. And it, and it does so not just by ending with mention of the Lord speaking to Abram. That's, that's a big piece here. God speaks finally. He has the last word, right? But before that, it tells us that basically Abram does to Lot what God later does to him. It, it employs a literary device of repetition to show us that Abram is resembling God. I don't know if you guys, you guys noticed this or not, the repetition here. It's a big literary device in Genesis, so get used to it. Uh, the passage, so let me explain this. The passage starts with Abram saying to Lot, before the land, so picture them kind of on the cusp of the land. Abram's got his arm around his nephew saying, look at the land. Is the whole land before you? Choose which way you'll go and spread out and multiply and have offspring and I'll go the other way. And he goes east towards the Jordan and, and Abram goes to the left. Then God does the exact same thing to Abram. He says, so after, it's almost like after that happens, you know, God kind of swoops down and puts his armor on Abram and says, is not the whole land before you, Abram? Lift your eyes up. Look from the place where you are. For all this land you will see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Do you guys see this? It's intentional repetition. It's saying Abram does to Lot what God then, in a kind of more climactic, more important way, in a sense, does for, for Abram. So the, the, the point is, Abram is acting like God. Abram is acting like God. It's kind of like, it made me think of um, David, King David later in the Bible says uh, this in regards to, to one in the house of Saul. It's Mephibosheth, if you know who he is. But 2 Samuel 9 3 says uh, about David, David's words, is there no one left in the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? David's saying, I am a picture, I want to be a picture of God to somebody with my actions. I want my kindness to resemble God's kindness. Who can I show God's kindness to? It's the same thing here in Genesis 13. Abram, Abram basically, without saying those words, is being the kindness of God to Lot. He, he is being the, the generosity of God and how he talks about the land to Lot in the same way that God is to him. And we could say, widening out to all who enter the promised land, physically throughout the Old Testament, spiritually by faith now in this New Testament era. Not a perfect one-to-one, -one, to be clear, because God doesn't say, separate yourself from me in any way, uh, to, to us, spiritually speaking, but the generals are still true. And if we say generally that this is occurring, that, uh, then we can say it specifically about other aspects of the passage. We can dissect it in a spiritual manner. And we can say it as though God are making those same types of statements to us today, right now in this room, through Jesus Christ. And so what I, what I mean is this. If this is like the, the paradigm, this is the grid, let's kind of go back and sift it a little bit and make these two claims about, about God in Christ acting this way towards us now. And the first kind of you know, maxim here or statement, truth, is this. It's actually the biggest one. In Christ, God, as the stronger, older, patriarchal figure, as if he were like Abram and we were like Lot, says to us in his son, again, let there be no strife between you and me. He comes down to us and puts his arm around us and says, let this be the case. Let there be peace when there isn't. 
And, and, and this is where biblical theology gets so much teeth to it, uh, where, where this passage becomes beautiful. Because without this, this passage is not beautiful. It's not. There might be some, some kind of principle there, but one word we can't give to it is beautiful without this idea. Because if we don't get to God and Jesus, it's instantly irrelevant for us in the New Testament era. And so, if we, we must believe then that these are actually God's words to us believers or to those of us who aren't yet believing but on the cusp of that or maybe not even on the cusp. They're God's words to sinners, not just Abram's to Lot. And so, like Jesus says a lot when he makes a theological claim, he'll say a lot of times, do you believe this? So I would relay that to you here in this, in this context. Do you believe that God has said to you in and through his son and what he did for you on the cross, let there be peace between us? Do you believe that today? Not as a call for you to work for the peace, but rather, like Abram here, a declaration of a newfound reality in him. Something he's taking on his shoulders to make possible. Kind of like formerly he said in the same language, remember back in Genesis 1, let there be light and there was. Let there be all things in creation and there was. God's never impotent with his words. So like in Genesis 1.3, he says, let there be light. He pushes back the darkness and it happened. Now he says the same language, let there be peace, no strife between us, and there was. I mean, does God ever say, let there be, and is there ever not something after that? See, biblically, theologically, if you are believing in Jesus Christ, God has spoken to you through his Son, let them, my enemies, those at odds with me, like Lot is at odds with Abram, let those who are sinful before me, a holy God, be at peace. Let the war end. And, and he's do, here, it's, this is just narrative. This, this is early on. This is foggy, right? In Christ, all this finds, and, and I'll read Colossians 1 here as one example of this, but same kind of language. Colossians 1, 19-20 talks about how in Christ this is all possible with God. For in him, for in Jesus... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. How does he do that? He says, making peace by the blood of his cross. So the cross is central. The cross is not, I think Spencer might have been saying that, or Peter, I forgot who was talking about. The cross was not, you know, an accident. It was the means by which God brought all the promises to Eve, to Adam, to Abram, to the world through Abram, when I'm going to bring blessing to a cursed world, at that point, that's actually too enigmatic. It's not concrete enough. So here, when we're seeing reconciliation happen, where we're seeing God kind of through Abram saying, let there be peace, let there be reconciliation, let there be entrance into the land, the way that that occurs is by the blood of his cross. And, and so then we actually see that here too. The second thing, is in Christ, God, this is what Genesis 13 is saying, God invites you and me into his land of blessing and rest by saying, like Abram to Lot, is not the whole land before you? Speaking to people who might think that the land is small or not sufficient or not provisional enough. Is not the whole land there? Look at how much I've given you. Or, like God to Abram, I will give you this land. Arise, walk in it. Look at the breadth and length of it. Look at my generosity. It's all for you. Which is again to say, I will do this. Right? When, when God speaks this way in the Bible, uh, if you guys like to underline, please do this. I, I love to underline these kinds of things. Always write how the, the, the onus, the impetus, it's always on God. Is, is Abram asked anything here by God? Does God, say, does God say, Abram, you have to do this, or then I will do this? Does that come up once? Has that come up once yet in, in Genesis? It hasn't. Completely unconditional. He's saying, I will give, I will bring you in, I will provide, I will make sure that you enter, and that you receive uh, from, from me, I will give you the gift of salvation. 
It's incredibly good news. Colossians 1.12 says, again, from the New Testament, using land language, so I'll explain this, but this is right into the church, though, New Testament church. Give thanks to God, the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. Give thanks to God, the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. Inheritance, every time that comes up in the Bible in the New Testament, it's always pointing back to land promises in the Old. It's Israel had the inheritance of land in the Old Testament. And now, spiritually speaking, we, if you're a Christian today, we have entered the spiritual land of God's promise now through our belief in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. We are close to him again. That's the connections these things make. There's a lot more to say about that, but that's kind of the, the two dots there, connected quickly. Uh, but inheritance here, so by saying this, he's saying, church, thank God that he has qualified you to enter. Guys, here's the gospel. The gospel is it's no longer up to you to qualify yourself to enter. It's no longer up to you to qualify yourself. Stop trying to qualify yourself. He qualifies you through his son's blood. He qualifies you through his act, his son's act of obedience on your behalf. I don't care how sinful you are. I don't care how much you're steeped in doubt, in your your day-to-day rejection of God. The cross is bloody for a reason. He's dying for the worst of sins. He's dying so that all types of sinners can be qualified Good en- I mean, basically what that's saying is good enough. <laughs> it's saying to really bad people, I'm making you good enough. You know, it's sort of like a declaration. Uh, Let there be no strife between us. He's kind of writing on us, you know, a, a verdict of, of innocence. I, I'm, I'm qualifying you. I love you. See how this is love? I mean, he's, if he were to say here, I'll let you get in uh, if you obey me, if you follow me, if you keep the Ten Commandments, which aren't here yet, but if you do all of that, this wouldn't be love. It would be a contract between an employer and an employee, basically, at best, at best. There are those types of covenants in the Scriptures, but they're always called lesser covenants, ones that don't work. Because if it's up to us, it always fails. That's Israel's story, I mean, in a nutshell. So it's a, Old Testament's about that thick, right? It's a long book. But that's basically her, Israel's story for us and for our benefit. By works, by our works, we never enter the land. By disbelief, we never get in. It's, we always get cast out. But if God makes us qualified by his grace and love, we enter. And, and he does that, again, by erasing our sin. And I, and I want to set the backdrop up here because if you weren't here last week for chapter 12, even if you were and you forgot, This is exactly what we see play out narratively by what's left out in Genesis 13 with Abram. And so on on Abram's side of things, you know, God comes down, puts his arm around him and says, I'm giving you all this land. What just happened in chapter 12? We're meant to read these things together, by the way. So, you know, it's fine to kind of stop chapter after chapter if you're kind of devotionally reading through the Bible, but don't forget what we just read. There's no chapter marks in the original uh, Bibles or uh, transcripts. There are no chapter marks. This is like right after chapter 12, this occurs. And so what, what makes God's grace here particularly amazing is Abram's rap sheet. And look at, look at what he is here. He's an, idol, he's an idol worshiper, plucked up as he's worshiping other gods. God says, poke, taps him on the shoulder and says, you're mine. You're mine. I love you. Come with me. I'm taking you away from that so that you might worship me, the only true God and rest in my land forever. I'm saving you from worshiping idols. But anyway, he's a liar. He has lack of trust in God, and he sold his wife, you guys. He sold his wife. This is like, this just happened. And God puts his arm around this guy and says, I will give you this land. You who just sold your wife. I'm going to show you kindness. You guys have a category for this in your belief system? Is this just? Is this fair? Spence talked a little bit about this last week. 
Uh, you know, I, I think it's, it's interesting here in chapter 13, <laughs> sometimes you think, well, if I was writing the Bible, what would I do? <laughs> it's, always, it's always bad, you know, it's always a bad version, God's is always way better, of course, but like, what would I say if I didn't know, if I put my hand over the rest of the Bible, and we just had the first 12 chapters, chapter 13 for me would be this long divine discourse on God exposing Abram's sin, saying, you suck, over and over again. Over and over and over again. Right? Would anyone else think that? I mean, that's... What, what, does he bring up Abram's sin once? He sold his wife. Does he bring it up once? Does he accuse him? Look at how he treats him, you guys. Remember who this guy is. And we might say, well, at least I haven't done that. Sold my wife. But got to be careful with that. It's, if you want to grade yourself on a curve, I mean, in one sense, maybe that's part of the point, is if God can save those people, he can save me, fine. But be careful with that, because in your heart, husbands, you have sold your wife many times, because you've hated her, and, and you haven't treated her like she's special and beautiful, and you're number one. I've done that. You've done that. So in the heart, you have. And so just be careful with that. That's kind of a sidebar. But all right. We need to have a category here for God showing kindness and patience to these types of people. Or we have no gospel. If he hasn't died for these sins, then he hasn't died for your sins. This is incredibly good news for seriously corrupt sinners. Incredibly good news. You know, those of us who know our need, uh, who know our sin, who pray that God will help me to know know our sin better. Just this last week I was praying that. I didn't feel the weight of my sin, and it kind of scared me. And this happens all the time, of course, but at a moment this week, just praying, God, make my sin heavy. I feel like sin, some sins in my life are becoming day-to-day, and I don't really care anymore. It's a scary spot. I'm mean, pray, praying for that. But anyway, those generally, though, who know their sin, we look at the cross, Jesus hanging on a cross, and we see his, his blood pouring from his body, and it makes sense say, well, that's why the cross was so visceral. He's dying for wife sellers. That's why he was torn to shreds and his lungs were exposed through his back. He was torn to shreds so much with the, the, flat, the, the flagellums. That's why it took so long to suffocate to death over six hours. That's why his heart finally gave up and stopped. That's why he was beaten so much he was unrecognizable. Those of us who know our sin actually rejoice at that because we know if that happened... My Savior loves me through that. And there's hope that he died for that really, 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 really dark thing in my heart that I can't seem to shake. But if, if you think you're a good person, the, the, the visceralness of the cross just kind of becomes disgusting, a little bit offensive, and why so much, God? Did he really have to take that much of a beating? We might say God is, you know, looking at Abram here. Is it really just? You can go one more uh, slide there, Heather. Is God really just to save a wife seller? God has to be just. The answer to his justice is Abram's sin of selling his wife is poured out in that man right there, along with all of your sins you've ever done in your life and you ever will commit. That's what the gospel says. You don't have to believe that. I hope you do. But the gospel is justice has to be done. Our sins have to be atoned for. But God is perfectly loving at the same time. How do those two things come together? Where does mercy and justice kiss? Where is God's genius worked out? It's right here. Perfectly just, perfectly merciful towards lost sinners at the same time. And this is so decisive, let me remind you, in, in Hebrews 8, this is why Genesis 13, I think, doesn't have any list of Abram's sins. It's kind of like God forgot. Narratively, you're supposed to ask that question. Did God forget what just happened? We can say the same thing about us. I just looked at porn all day. I lied to my wife about it. I, you know, um, hated my neighbor. I yelled at him for mowing the lawn too far over into my yard. You know, I got angry at my kids. Whatever it, it is, some kind of other sexual sin or 
you know, I, or you know what? I just didn't trust God. I haven't prayed in weeks and I've just lived, been living for my, whatever it is. And you go on sometimes in your life and you say, why is God still with me? Why is he even like, why is he so patient? You ever wonder that? Like, what, why is he still here? You're telling me he's still putting his hand around me and saying, look at the land I'm giving you? To the point where we're saying, oh, that's great, God, but look at, don't you remember what I just did? Hebrews 8.13 says that in Christ, this New Testament, New Covenant, God covenants or relates with people through his, his son's shed blood, I will remember your sins no more. It's divine self-forgetfulness, essentially. God's saying, I've so much dealt with your sins that I'm going to treat you like Abram here in Genesis 13 and just never bring them up again. If you've ever had someone in your life on a human level who's done that, it's a glorious thing. Uh, you know, people can do that to each other and say, you know, that was an offense to me, uh, but you know what? I'm never going to bring it up again. I love you. I forgive you. I, will, I promise you I'll never bring it up again. Some of you had that before. Maybe some of you haven't. Good news is God is that way to you right now. Right now in this very room, he's like that to you. I will remember your sins, God is saying through this passage. I will remember your sins no more when you believe in my son. I will give you the gift of the land, not based on your moral effort or your inherent goodness, because there is none. Uh, based on my goodness and my promise to save, I will allow you to enter and to arise. It's kind of like resurrection language there in a way. To arise and walk in the land of salvation forever with me. And so lastly here, a couple of comments uh, I'll conclude with. This actually could be its own sermon, but it's not going to be. No time. At the very end, or kind of in the middle, you see Lot and Abram separate, right? There's a contrast. One goes east, one goes west. Lot goes towards the sinners, which is kind of even outside the land a bit. He's kind of right on the cusp of the edge and sort of outside the land. Sodom and Gomorrah, which later become this place of intense wickedness that God destroys. We'll talk about that chapter 19 and 18. Anyway, but Abram chooses this, or kind of gets, inherits by God's grace, really, because he's not choosing it, which is kind of cool. God just allows him to have, with the flip of the coin, the right side. You know, so, so Lot chooses poorly, you know, and Abram gets this, uh, by God's sovereignty, this right side, the right portion. And so what I want to say here then is, as kind as God is and as generous as he is, we still have to choose to enter the land. We have to enter the right side. We have to choose the right portion. Um, there's this narrative depiction here of people being split up, and Lot is um, a picture of one that sees the land, kind of, and this will be a way for us to see Christ, but not really enter by faith the land that he is, and we kind of go the wrong way. But Abram, by grace, uh, chooses the, the right side, and so it's this constant thing before us. It's always good news, but Jesus says, those who received me, I gave the right to become qualified again. I qualified or gave the right to become children of God. So we have to receive that land and that inheritance. Choose the right portion. And so I just want to end with his picture again, and I'll just uh, put Christ back up here. Luke 10, this is uh, Jesus speaking to Mary, uh, sorry, to Martha about her, her sister um, Mary, just saying, Mary has chosen the good portion, referring to himself. Portion, by the way, is another word used for land in the Old Testament. So kind of referring to himself, again, as the ultimate land of God's blessing. Uh, Mary's chosen the right portion, Martha, which will not be taken from her. So, again, guys, picture this. Right in this room, this is spiritually happening right now. God has his arm around your shoulder as a sinner, you, us being sinners. And he's saying, I have this land before you, and that's the land. And he's saying, uh, arise, walk in it, walk in him. The Bible says, walk in Christ. Walk in him, walk in it, walk in this land. Choose to enter by faith. Believe that it's by his death on the cross that you're saved, not by your moral effort, not by your inherent goodness, not by trying really hard not to do bad things throughout your life. We're all Abram here, steeped in sin, but grace comes in and God's remains strangely present, and that's how he does it. This is how God remains strangely present. If you've ever had that moment in your life 
where you felt after a day of deep, deep, deep sin, and you get up and you say, you might read something or someone embodies it to you or you just know that I'm breathing. He didn't kill me. <laughs> he's, he's still here. Why? That's the answer. That's how he's able to draw close to you and qualify you to enter the land. It's not by stopping things, it's about embracing things. And then he'll change your heart. Like Abrams went from selling his wife to being generous. You know, he, he gives us his spirit to change your life and our affections change. But he, make no mistake, he's the gate, he's the door. He, he's the way in. There is no other way to God. It's Abram saying, as a sinner, I have faith in you, God. I just sold my wife, forgive me, what was I thinking Please wash my soul of that. Please help me to get back into your land. He's probably thinking in Egypt, is he going to bring me back after that? (laughs) Is there a second chance after that fiasco? And God really, without any kind of dialogue, just says, doesn't even really answer that question. He just shows him the land. And so the question daily as sinners, as Christians already, Abram's already called here. He's already called away from his old life. He's already effectively saved in the sense that he trusts God for salvation from death and this land. The question is for us daily as sinners, people who fall on our face, where do you go? Who is God to you in that moment? What do you believe about his promises? Do you believe he's still putting his arm around you and loving you and saying, by grace, I want you to enter my land? Ultimately, him by faith. Um, that, that's, that's the gospel. And don't take the lot route. You know, Remember lots, the, the land Lot had kind of looked beautiful to his eyes? It looked like that's the most watered land. I mean, sometimes the right way, sometimes that won't be beautiful to you. you know? Other things will be more beautiful. Like Lot went something more externally beautiful. There might be something theological you don't quite understand or you doubt. I don't quite understand how that works. But it's still the answer. And you can still, by faith, hold on to him for dear life and take communion in light of him and partake of the food he has to give you spiritually. You can still do that. You know, but I mean, sometimes it's not the obvious way, right? Like it was, was for a lot. But again, the invitation is believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins today for the thousandth or the first time. And uh, let me close now in prayer and we'll take communion. God, thank you so much for today, for your grace and the gospel of Christ through uh, the lens of Genesis 13. Uh, thank you for the amazing, just shocking, seemingly unfair grace that you show uh, and how um, Abram as well becomes this image of uh, a promise of reconciliation with people at odds with you. And uh, we, we thank you that by the blood of the cross you have reconciled to yourself all things and we're a part of those things because we're things. <laughs> we're, um, we're human beings that Jesus died for and we rejoice, uh, God, help us to hold on to that by faith today. Even if it's just a mustard seed of faith, uh, we pray it help us to hold on to, hold on to you like you're the only life preserver in the midst of the ocean. Cling to you and trust that, God, I pray you please save me from my sin. Save me from not trusting you enough, for having affections towards sin. and um, Save me from my doubts, amidst my doubts, maybe. Uh, still save me. Uh, God, I pray that we are posture as we take communion and Um, But thank you. This is, again, a reminder that you forget our sin when you die for it. It's that erased. It's that done. In Christ's name, amen. Guys, so a couple of things quick on communion. Um, We, you know, and as I was talking about, this is central for the church. If you weren't aware of this, it is, I think as our table says here, it's not on this side, is it? (laughs) It's the idea of remembrance. Uh, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Was looking back. And so the hours before Jesus was, was betrayed and ultimately died on the cross, he institutes a meal. It's a Passover meal, but he says, this is kind of a new meal in a sense, a meal wrapped around myself and what I'm going to do for you on the cross. It's a, a meal that talks about kind of, but more symbolizes the new covenant. And so he picks up uh, bread and breaks it and says, this is my bread, or sorry, my body given for you. And, and he pours out wine and says, drink this. This is, this is my blood. And, and if you drink it, and by faith, if you receive it, you will be absolved your sin. You, it, it's a reminder that my blood poured out in the cross, the ultimate wine, absolves you 
of your sin. It, it, it erases it. That's the New Testament covenant, meaning the way God connects now with you and he offers us peace and grace, the ultimate olive branch, is not based on us. Like in Genesis 13, it's on him saying, I will do this. I will give you the land. And so as Christians, we're storytellers. We're, we're not advice givers primarily. We tell a story about a God who's amazing, who's come to the world to do something unbelievably amazing. And, and we believe and we trust and we hold on for dear life <laughs> throughout all of our days uh, as people who are prone to not believe that and to self-justify. And so the invitation then is for people like Abram, the worst of sinners, come. What will keep you away from this table and what it represents is your goodness primarily, uh, not just the bad things you've done, but thinking that you don't need it. And I, I'm saying that, from, again, from the scriptures and from experience personally and as a pastor, if, if you think you're good, you won't come or you won't come in the right way. Uh, there's a reason why Jesus hung out with the worst of people and good people rejected him. That, that is one of the, the, most con, the, the most talked about narratives throughout the Gospels. That the best people, at least externally, were offended by him, they rejected him, but the worst flocked to him because they saw their need. So the invitation today, as it is every week, is come messy to the cross with your doubts, with your disbeliefs, with your sins, with your propensities to see yourselves as more, more than you really are. Thinking of yourselves as something when you're actually nothing, Galatians 6.3 says. Bring all of that. Dump it before the cross and, and eat and partake. And for the first time or the hundredth, come and believe that Jesus, as we saw earlier, hanging on that cross, the man on the cross is sufficient. Uh, dying is a substitute for you and me uh, in, in our place and reconciling us to God alone. And so a couple of things on, on communion. We're going to play through a set of songs. Anytime during the songs, come on down, break off some bread and wine. We practice open communion, you don't have to, which means you don't have to be a member here to take it. Uh, it could be your first Sunday here. We just ask that you're a Christian, a, a true believer in the fact that Jesus died for your sins. Then come and remember him through, um, through this. We have uh, wine and juice, by the way. So Oh, and gluten-free. So many options. But uh, all right, let me pray for us again. Invite the band up. And anytime during the songs, come on down and eat with yourself, uh, people you came with. And I'll be up front with some people too to pray if you'd like. I'd love to pray for you during that time. So let's pray. God, thanks for today, for your grace in the gospel of Christ and what this uh, meal means. I pray it'd help us to worship now, to respond, uh, and to, to eat. Uh, not so much to fill us physically and nourish us physically, but to nourish us, our, our hearts spiritually. Uh, just believing by faith that um, you are the bread of life. Uh, Jesus, you say, only those who eat your body and drink your blood are saved. So God is coming by faith and believing that and rejoicing that that's true because we're eating now. And by faith, we believe in the cross and the empty tomb. And so God, make it, a, make it a, this time a time of joy and somber repentance, but then may we live squarely and freely in the limelight of the empty tomb. Uh, death has been vanquished. Uh, praise be to God and our sins are no more.